And I think that's one reason why we have seen many people experience, not all researchers, but a lot of people experiencing an increase in narcissism in our culture. If you think about it right now, the emphasis on achievement is really important because what does achievement mean? Achievement is ostensibly kind of outward manifestation of your accomplishments. And you're talking about like an art piece. Are you doing it to be the most perfect artist? Are you, are you creating a sense of an internal expression that is creative and that you feel compelled to share? They're really different motivations. This is Holding Your Own, a series from Therapist Uncensored that aims to deepen and broaden security when faced with challenging personalities. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hi, everybody. We're back. This is the third episode in a series of Holding Your Own. And we are doing a series on building and holding your own security while in relationships with difficult types of personality traits And today we are going to be talking about an element of narcissism. So we started talking about what messy security looks like, like what's healthy, but looks pretty ugly. (laughs) And then last time we talked about one of the kinds of narcissism, which is grandiose narcissism. So you can review either of those if you'd like to, if you've missed them. And just to note uh, the grandiose narcissism, if you haven't had a chance to hear it, that's what you are more typically familiar with in the media. That's somebody who tends to hold their defenses in a, a more arrogant, entitled way. Yeah, those are easy to spot. What's much more difficult to spot is the other side of the coin from grandiose narcissism. It's called so many different things, depressed narcissism, covert narcissism, vulnerable narcissism, even hypervigilant narcissism. I've seen that. And I'll say, you know, it's easy to point and identify the grandiose. But once we start talking about the vulnerable, it's kind of like the worst in the room and feeling like so bad that we're worse than other people, which I don't know if you are like this, but it's easier to generally identify with that side of things. A lot of people that are in therapy have depression, have shame and can feel really crappy about themselves. So we'll keep the conversation going about like, what's the difference between depression and this opposite of grandiose narcissism? So one of the reasons why the title of it being covert narcissism, the word covert is because it can be hard to identify and it can be hard to identify because it's not always the individual standing out, grabbing attention by appearing that they need it so much. Sometimes somebody in the corner that is on all levels looks like they're avoiding and not wanting attention really can make us focus that direction because we worry. Like think of the loud, quiet one. You know, the one that everyone is really aware that isn't speaking. Now, again, remember, we are not diagnosing anyone. So as you're listening to this, the whole idea here is that if you could kind of identify some of the dynamics in someone else or even in yourself, we want to focus on what to do about it to move towards secure relating. So as I'm saying some of these things, I can just imagine people like either like feeling embarrassed because that's them or feeling like they can hear someone that is close to them. Right. And we're going to hear elements of all of us in some of these things, right? We're all going to feel periods of our own arrogance, our own entitlement. And maybe we've had this really horrible, horrible period and we're in the corner. We really do need people's attention, even if we don't know it. And so 
we've gone to the event, but we're really withdrawn. And maybe secretly we are trying to pull someone in, even on an unconscious level, to take care of us. And that's not pathology, right? That sometimes is insecurity being acted out. That's right. And like everybody in certain circumstances can be arrogant and can feel like they're the better than and like you're saying, or can feel underneath. Let's just jump right in about some of the difference is one, if you actually have narcissism, these are two sides of the same coin. Exactly. So if you actually have it, you have it generally pervasively. It's not that you're feeling all hyped up and better than because you just accomplished something wonderful or that you're feeling massively insecure because you've just been through a breakup. It can look very self-absorbed and very, I'm the center of the universe, but those are situation dependent. And so what we would think of with those is like, we might be in a narcissistic state or be narcissistically injured. You know, it's definitely not a personality disorder, but like just thinking of it as, if it's fleeting, it's something very different than I'm trying to avoid the saying personality or personality disorder. Well, I think what you're meaning is that we can all go in and out of periods of these kind of really difficult dynamics, right? That can draw attention either way, feeling boastful or feeling really under. But it can also be that because of our history and our lives, these patterns develop more into fixed, rigid traits, into dynamics that are really more about the overall personality. And one of the reasons we're doing this series is because the more that we can recognize these dynamics, both in ourselves and in our relationships, it's not to point and pathologize. It's to help make something that can feel really muddy more clear and gives us an ability to, like you said, recognize it in ourselves or others, and then really develop some strategies. Because the point here is that when you are involved with someone is more severe and has this as a more characteristic of who they are, it can really wreak havoc. So on one hand, we're saying the soft stuff about it comes and goes. But on the other hand, we want to acknowledge that I don't know if you've been on the other side of somebody who really has this to their core, but you can feel obliterated. You can feel crazy. And you know, that's where gaslighting kind of came from. You can feel almost as if you don't exist. So that's the kind of stuff that we're talking about, about, okay, let's get you out of that, where that you can really feel yourself and you know what you know, and you see what you see, and you can respond however you need to respond, you know, whatever you need to do. Right, because much of this is for all of us unconscious. And so why are they both called narcissism, right? Because they're very somewhat different manifestations, right? But they're both called either kind of more arrogant, grandiose narcissism, or today we're talking about vulnerable narcissism. And the reason for the word narcissism in this is that the general sense of self-absorption and the feelings of entitlement and that the focus tends to be on the self. So in covert narcissism, you still have that. It's not quite as obvious because it's not necessarily coming out in this extroverted attention grabbing, don't you see me as great? It can come out actually by the sense that the person feels that all eyes just generally are on them, but possibly in them and criticizing them or judging them. But it's still a central experience of self-focus. Yeah, I always love just that general idea of, you know, thinking for myself, you know, I'm not the greatest, but I'm not the absolute worst either. That's a pretty special place. So we're talking about getting right there in the middle. And Anne, last time you said something really awesome, but 
these aren't achievement oriented. So if you are using relationships to manage your self-esteem, that's what narcissism is about. And, you know, on the depressed one, like you're saying that like, okay, you're quiet and in the corner, like you're going to have more bitterness, like you're going to feel misunderstood, you're going to feel like done to, like there's a more of aggression, there's more anger in that than if someone who's actually depressed, for example. Yeah, that's great. Let's draw a distinction between that, right? Because for those of us, if we go through a period of depression, or if we struggle with more of the manifestation of depression in our personality, we could feel like the worst one in the room, we could feel like that we're not very worthy. But what differs is that is that we have a sense of self, we have a sense of self, it's a bad sense of self. But it is a sense of self that we kind of suck. And it's a very painful, painful place. But that's usually connected to a lot of guilt, like we're doing something wrong. And actually, it's a really better sign to have an element of guilt in this process where when we're talking about covert narcissism, that generally is about a little bit more emptiness, a really lacking of a sense of self and this hidden need to avoid feeling shame or embarrassment or being exposed for not being enough. So the covert narcissism really kind of comes from a place of, I don't quite know who I am, but I think if I could only be the most amazing, if I could only be beautiful, if I could only be successful, then my life would be okay. So as you were pointing out, it's kind of externally dependent on my own identity. I need the other person to be able to hold who I am and my self-esteem. I even think of like Brene Brown's work and perfectionism. And so if you're somebody who you can't get started because you're afraid of failure, this is just a simple example. Well, what's underneath that often is that if you do something, it better shine. And that's an example, that's just one little tiny example of like, it's not, yeah, yeah, it's a fear of failure, but the failure comes from it being imperfect or it being judged not good enough. So again, that that notion of you're not the best, you're not the worst, so make some mediocre piece of art, (laughs) make bad poetry, you know, like that's might be how it feels. But now what you're doing is you're expressing yourself and you're less focused on the outcome and what you get back from it. And that that's another distinction of, achievement versus, you know, just my human heart and my imperfections. I like the distinctions. I think the achievement is the big one. And I think that's one reason why we have seen many people experience, not all researchers, but a lot of people experiencing an increase in narcissism in our culture. If you think about it right now, the emphasis on achievement is really important because what does achievement mean? Achievement is ostensibly kind of outward manifestation of your accomplishments. And you're talking about like an art piece. Are you doing it to be the most perfect artist? Are you are you creating a sense of an internal expression that is creative and that you feel compelled to share? They're really different motivations, aren't they? They are. And earlier when you said the difference between guilt and shame, I totally know what you're talking about. And I love Nancy McWilliams work, but I think it can be confusing. So let's go to depression again. Well, if we talk about the difference between feeling depressed versus having more of a depressed covert narcissism, those aren't the same thing. So for example, when you're actually depressed, there is, again, what, as Anne said, the sense of being bad. So this is why that I don't like that, oh, that it's guilt related, because the feeling of depression is inner depletion. Mm-hmm. I mean, like a flatness. Unfortunately, many of us, many of you, 
included have had periods where we have felt that I think of it as like the elephant on the chest, you know, and that's different, for example, than mourning. So if I'm mourning something, there's a loss outside. If I'm depressed, then it's me that is wrong or bad. And then if I am a covert narcissist, (laughs) there is an annihilation of self. And that's one of the things that we should really get to here is what is getting projected out. And I think to say things succinctly, narcissism always at its core is shame. You know, if you're grandiose, you're projecting shame out to other people. And so that's why you feel horrible in the eyes of a somebody who's grandiose and they're devaluing you. What they've done is they've put their bad self inside of you. Or what we're talking about today is the opposite of that, is the covert, which is they're the ones pulling it all towards them. So they're in their pot of shame totally. But the other side of it isn't being in the middle. It's that they there's this belief that they have to shine to be okay. That's a really great way to put it. And kind of the origins of that is the origins of a lot of narcissism has to do with kind of development of a false self. And it's because of how their value was given to them, right? If we're valued for who we are as a child, really seen our good and our bad self, but really valued for who we are, we can have a core sense of knowing who we are. But when we're valued for what we can bring to somebody else, whether it's admiration because you shine for your parents or being around constant criticism. Either way, it's really hard to feel the development of a true sense of yourself. So there's a sense of false self. And so I like how you're putting, really explaining this part of a covert narcissist will end up bringing the attention towards them because it's dependent. They can't find themselves. So if they can draw the attention for their negative selves towards them, then it helps them have a sense of identity. Part of how you can tell is, again, this idea of narcissistic supply. If you're being used to maintain somebody's self-esteem, then yeah, you might be very valuable as a person in relationship with them, but it's only to the extent that you're serving them, that you're filling them up, that you're making them, either that you're bringing them out of the depths of despair or that you're mirroring their your admiration and the grandiose piece of it. That helps us jump into why we might get in relationships and these are what is attractive initially about these dynamics. There's a sense of pressure, right? And it's a pressure on both sides. And I feel I want to mention the compassion here for both sides. It's hard to feel the compassion for the arrogant side because they don't seem like they need compassion. But both sides actually, when we fall on those ends, we need compassion because it is this whole and this feel sense of pressure because if not getting filled by that extension, there's a desperate sense of emptiness that's right below the surface. That's one of the ways that you can tell when you're relating to somebody that has a more narcissistic inner orientation. This is if you're a therapist, you feel this as well. You're drawn to like fight them, you know, and so when you're saying that they need compassion, sometimes it's like when you have none and you just want to say, you know, put your hands on your hips and like your poop stinks, man. Like, you know, like if you're really like having aggressively wanting to point out that they're not that great, that's actually a sign of that. Right. Like pulling out sort of this unempathetic confrontation. That's like right. therapists can fall into that when they have an arrogance in front of them as they want to, they're not empathetic listener and can be combative. 
Or the other side of that is when you feel the eggshells and then you feel that the only way to relate is to, again, mirror them and give them back what they need. So you basically, it's kind of like you either lose yourself as the internal feeling or you're like swinging away and like fighting for yourself. So those are kind of signs that you can feel inside of yourself when you might be in a narcissistic dynamic. So that also can be that somebody that is experiencing more covert types of narcissism, they can bring out the experience that they've been quite victimized. And so that you can fall in, whether you're in a relationship with somebody or you're a therapist with somebody, that they're chronically in this feeling of feeling very fragile, put upon, and therefore victimized. And so initially it can bring out a lot of sympathy. You know, we did an episode one time, in on Cartman's Triangle. And it's probably worth just referencing that real quick, that inside of each of us, there are basically a triangle of states, the perpetrator, the victim, and the rescuer. And so some of what Anne's talking about with the covert narcissism is they're going to be in the victim position, and you're pulled to either really take care of them and hold them up and, you know, try to get them, try to right the wrongs that have been done to them. Or you end up popping over and being really mad and wanting to punch out of this. So what you want to do with this always is you're trying to aim for the middle of the triangle. And the middle of the triangle looks like you have access to assertion and boundaries, which comes from the perpetrator side, and but a healthy version of it. You have access to care and compassion, which comes from the caretaking side. And you also have access to the part of you that is hurt by this and that is in some pain around the dynamic. So that's your way of holding on to yourself. So it's almost like you have one foot, you know, in the ring of like, this person's making it really difficult for me. This might be how it sounds in the middle of the triangle. Anne's vulnerability, like it's always about her. Oh my God. So for a while I might like really be trying to lift her up and like, no, it's real. They didn't mean that. And, you know, really trying to take care of her. I might pop over and like, oh be my, sick of it. Be so sick of it. Like, oh Lord, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm playing my little violin over here. You know, I'm so tired of having to bring her up from her insecurities. And then the middle though, and it's good to kind of do some of these examples, I think, but in the middle, it might look like that I'm aware of those two things, but I'm also aware of like my fatigue or here's something that's very realistic. Like if I have a history from my own early upbringing of being a caretaker, then somebody like this is really going to draw that out in me. And so the middle of the triangle would look like, oh, I need to be really careful not to lose myself. And so I need to think when they call on me, when Anne wants me to do something, uh, it's so funny because you're so not narcissistic, it's hard to even do the example. But when she calls on me to do something, it's like, considering how that is for me, that's part of it. Having some compassion so it's not only about me is part of it. And then also, here's a little example of something you could say to someone to help get them out of it, which is like, oh, you weren't invited to a party. You weren't invited to this social outing. Like I could say, well, and did they know that you wanted to go? Did you call them? I know they didn't call you, but like you just help them find their own imperfection. With agency. Yeah. Founding your own sense of imperfection with agency. 
instead of the victimization, because it could be really easy. Like, that sucks that you didn't get invited. You know, so it'd be really easy to support my victimization in that. And if I struggle with covert narcissism, part of the reason I feel like a victim is I really do feel like a victim. I'm not just saying that, right? Yeah, the injury is real. The injury is very real. There's a sense of the introversion in the covert narcissism is more about being neurotically hypersensitive to feelings of rejection or being pushed away. And so there is a way that that sensitivity constantly could bring affirmation towards me. And I can unconsciously be pulling towards it by being in the corner or saying, and you know, nobody ever invites me to anything. But if you'll notice, nobody ever invites me to anything with a sense of, I've been done wrong. A little bit element of victimization. People are mistreating me. And when I do that, I get to abdicate my own sense of responsibility for it. And that's where the two, the, the sense of narcissism comes in. I'm not able to self-reflect on myself where I would much more in a depressed state be able to have that self-reflection where I exist, you exist, and there's somewhere in between. Narcissism loses that relationality. I exist in my victimness and the other person's done me wrong then they fail to be able to exist with me. And that's the biggest painful part about experiencing narcissism inside yourself or trying to be in a relationship when that is really flared up. Right. So we were saying the injury is real. The issue is that it is real from a long time ago. Yes. <laughs> and so it's an implicit, well, actually, this gets us into just little side note here of what causes it, because that's going to inform us about what to do about it. It's very divided. There's lots of different ideas, but I could summarize it like this. Like there's one camp or school of thought. Let's say if you're a plant and if you haven't had enough sunlight and if you've had bad soil, in other words, from neglect or, or even or if you've been watered too much or whatever, there's this almost like environmental stunting. And so then what to do about it would be- Watered too much in terms of you're amazing, you're wonderful, your teacher sucks, not you, would be an overwatering and underwatering is- Yeah, your coach isn't playing you. What's wrong with the coach? (laughs) Yeah, the underwatering, yeah. What's wrong with the coach? Or you didn't get played because you didn't try hard enough. Why didn't you try harder? Because I- Did you see everybody else out there? They can do it. And the reflection being, I need you to succeed for my identity, not because I see you. And that misstep is so painful for the person growing up who really needs to be attuned to. And they missed out on that. I love your plant analogy because if I've gotten too much water or not enough, my roots are really eroded in a way that I have to experience all the time. Well, where it goes to is like what to do about it. And so if it has something to do with this soil, let's say, and the care, you know, there's idea that you can love them out of this, that if I do enough, if I care enough, if I stay with them no matter what, I'm going to give them more of the nutrients that they didn't have. So that's a school of thought about what to do about this. The other school of thought is that it's not about soil and water, that it really is just the plant has kind of mutated. <laughs> that in other words, uh, because in neurological findings, there really is an actual difference from a brain scan, from fMRIs. It's all related to the limbic and the prefrontal cortex. So it really kind of is a different animal when we're really talking about this as a personality disorder, as a way of being. The more rigid developed fixed traits really do have difficulty regulating their emotions, et cetera, yes. Right, and so when we talk about grandiosity, so the different train of thought of what to do about it is that you are actively confrontive 
that it's not about water and light and love. It's about these people need help coming off their high horse. They don't even know they're on a high horse. (laughs) So there's really active confrontation to help bring them down into the world of relationality. And that confrontation isn't about like what we were speaking about, like unempathetic, it's about staying relational and confrontational. It might be a little unempathetic. Well, that's true. When you think of uh, Terry Rial's work, for example, who's done a ton of work with men and grandiosity, it can be pretty rough. You know, the idea is that the conflict isn't inside them. It's between them and someone else. And so if you don't get the consequences up pretty high, which again goes back to holding your own, So in that kind of thinking that you get the people that are being affected by the grandiosity to begin to really hold on to themselves and push back so that there is a reason to change. And I think our thinking on this is like, we can see that example. We can see the example of loving somebody enough, particularly in therapy, because we're being paid for it. If you're in a relationship with someone like a, you know, an unpaid relationship, you're basically kind of being asked to put your needs on hold while they grow a self. So that's just something to consider. We're not saying what to do about it, but it's different than when you're actually being paid to treat it. So anyway, where I'm going to with this is that I think that for each person, it's a little different and there's not just one thing to do about this. I really agree with you. And and to speak specifically about being in a relationship, let's go back to covert narcissism, for example. One of the things that we want to notice is if you start to recognize yourself as this or other individuals that you're in a relationship with, one of the things that we want to draw you to is how much do you feel like you can hold yourself in that relationship? Are there two people in the relationship? So with covert narcissism, that may show where you, let's say you're feeling successful in something and instead of feeling celebrated, it stirs envy and it stirs insecurity so that now I'm over there caring and like, no, 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 you're wonderful. You know, you're gonna. Yeah, I didn't cook that so great. No, it really went that great. You cook it a lot better than I do. Yeah, well, you get put, that's a great example. You get pulled out of your own success because if you are feeling state of security and maybe really success, it may evoke insecurity in the other person. So if you are generally losing yourself because if you hold yourself, the other person is feeling worse about themselves and feeling loss and feeling envy or becoming more fragile. That's a real sign that you are not able to hold your own or struggling holding your own. So let's give an example okay, just great. to bring this home. And then I know we're going to wrap up soon and we'll point to what we're going to be doing next. But the example, okay, how about this? I got invited to go to a friend's and it's their party. I'm more friends with them than you are, let's just say. In covert narcissism, what might happen? In covert narcissism, instead of being excited for you that you got an invitation of somebody you've really been wanting to hang out with. And let's just say we're friends. So this isn't bringing up necessarily jealousy romantically. It's just now it's just bringing up envy in me, right? Like instead of you've gotten invited to this with this group that you've really wanted to hang out with in covert narcissism, I might just get obsessed with my own sense of insecurity. It feels unfair Or maybe I also start becoming angry at you because I feel like you've sort of malevolently moved over there. So there's a sense of mistrust that you've actually abandoned me. 
my friendship isn't as important to you. You've really pushed over there to begin to create friendships without me. So what gets induced in me is jealousy, some fragility, and now a little bit of I'm pissed off at you. Yeah, I like envy. There's a lot of envy. I envy, yeah. But I was just smiling because like, I think that you're hitting it. Like, I imagine that folks that are listening can begin to be like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, I know that. We know kind of, you know, yes, we could give up the event or we could push off and do the event. But what would be the holding your own example of someone's in envy and sort of self-pity about not being invited? I think remembering that you might have in a history been tempted to give up the event over and over and over again. And guess what? You're going to build resentment. It's not going to be good. It's really important to note by what's not to do first is you keep giving it up. It's not going to be good for either one. It might make me feel better in the moment, but you're going to start resenting me. And then eventually we're going to start really fighting because you're like, every time I try to go to an event, you pull this on me. Yeah. And every little bit of freedom that you give up, you're not going to get that back. Right. Because it's going to feel like another injury. Like, okay, I won't go to that event this time with Marsha or whatever. But then next time or next time, say I give up a few, but finally I want to go see Marsha because God, I haven't seen her now in a year. Then it's going to feel as if, what? Why are you going to go see Marsha? You haven't seen her in a year, you know? So I would start with the expression, I want to hold my own. And if you notice, holding my own isn't doing anything to the other person. It's not criticizing them. Thank you for saying that. It's not saying you're taking anything away. It's not blaming the other person because the other person whose insecurity is coming up, that's what's in their system, not intentionally. But holding your own is like stopping and self-reflecting, taking a moment to say, wait, this is really important to me. I really do want to go see Marsha. Just like last time, it starts with the breath. Starts with the breath. Just take your deep breath. And that's already, you're already on the right path. Because from there, you can consider yourself. You can consider them. You can weigh these things. And you might actually in this process need more than just one breath, because especially if this is a perpetual ongoing fight, which if you've been in a relationship long enough, it is. So my body at this point would already be triggered, or your body, I'm the one going to the party and now I've gotten confused in our brainstorm. <laughs> but, but because these are repetitive dynamics and they've intensified, because in the beginning it might've felt good to go, no, I don't need to go to that. No big deal. You matter more to me is where we start and we really feel it. But over time, when you start giving up too much and giving up too much, you're pissed and you're angry. So instead of getting in a fight, take a breath and say, I'll be back. I, I got to take a minute before we talk more about this. So before you continue, you might even need 15 minutes before you come back. So take a breath might be more than you one. You might need two weeks. Now, come on. <laughs> so I want to get to the example and then wrap up. All right. So we would take a breath. And holding our own is recognizing what we value and what's important to us. And holding that, now I'm going to see the other person and understand that that person's experience is out of sense of fragility, not just trying to attack us. So it might sound something like basically holding both sides. You know, I feel uncomfortable and a little awkward because I feel bad that you weren't invited. And I really, you know, I want that for you. I definitely don't want to hurt you. But also, this is really important to me, and I really want to go. So I'm going to go, but it's almost like I would want to still help. Like, let's figure out, you know, maybe later after the party, you can talk to Marsha and let her know that you'd like to be, whatever it is, but something about agency. So I care about you. I care about myself. 
I'm going to not ignore you at all and just push off and go. But I'm definitely, definitely not going to collapse so that you don't feel bad. I love that because one of the things that was missing for me in this experience as a child that perpetuates this is not feeling attuned to. So if you just hold your own by giving me the third finger, that's actually in this process going to incite things that are really primary to me, really, really primary and trigger me completely. So by holding your own and seeing me to like, like, I'm really sorry, that really does suck. You have really wanted to go to this. So this is really hard for you. I get that. So a sense of attunement, that's why it might take you a few hours to give a two minute if this is repetitive. But if you can just say, I see you, that helps my nervous system really calm down. So I just had this image of, you know, holding your own, you know, the third finger and like holding your crotch <laughs> is one version, holding your own where you're like completely holding the other person, you and know, losing yourself and losing yeah. yourself. Those are ways we think we're holding our own, right? But I think what we're hitting is this middle ground where the I'm holding myself, I'm holding you. And based on if you're with someone that is bigger, it might look like working to hold yourself a little more. And if it's with somebody who really, even if they're in the covert, they're down, it's still going to look like holding yourself a little more in this situation. And one of the things you might experience that I want to mention is that we don't want to make it sound easy. Like if you just hold and go, I'm going to be fine. I might pull into some self-depreciation of my thought. I suck. And I could pull out even more content by saying more and more negative things about me. And part of what I would encourage in that is just like, God, I really hate you feel that way. I don't see it that way, but I hate that you feel it that way. So in future episodes, I think these are good little examples. In future episodes, you know, we were going to do malignant narcissism, antisocial next, but I'm wondering if we might need a break and go to the more reactive and then go to the malignant narcissism or borderline. We don't know as we uh, wrap this recording up, which one we're going to do next. So stay tuned. It's going to be one or the other. The highly reactive has traditionally been called borderline or the malignant. Either way, you're going to get both. It's just a matter of which order you're going to get them in. And they're definitely not the same thing. So we're not pairing them as the same dynamic. All right, let's make that a wrap. Thanks for joining us. If you found this helpful, please take the time to rate, review, and share this. That really helps us out. And I also want to do a big shout out to our Patreon members. Thank you so much for the support you give us makes all the difference in us being able to give this content out there. Yep. And if you're into it, you can join us on Patreon. Uh, be a neuro nerd in our community at patreon.com backslash therapist uncensored. But we do have a course called It's Not Me, It's My Amygdala. And that's about using modern attachment and interpersonal neurobiology to improve your everyday relationships. And you can find that at therapistuncensored.com backslash, I can't even remember events or It's Not Me, courses. It's My Amygdala courses. It's there on the page. You'll find it. Find it on our website. All right. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you around the bin. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. 